Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Matt. Good morning, everybody. It sure is wonderful to be here together and worship together in spirit and in truth, encourage one another, and we're so thankful to be able to be here together. It's such a blessing to be uh, here assembled to worship God. We're so thankful for those who are with us online and for those who are visiting with us this morning. And please let us know if you're visiting, if you have questions about the church, if you have questions about uh, what it means to be a Christian, about the Bible, about the Bullard congregation, whatever we can do to serve you, please let us know. James is going to continue to get in our business and tell us some things that we need to hear and things we need to be reminded of in uh, chapter 4, starting in verse number 13. And he's going to say something to us about our lives and help us understand the, the nature of our lives. And then he's got something to say to those who uh, are, are in society and oppressing the uh, generally poor Christians at the time, uh, those he's writing to directly. And then he's got something to say to those Christians as well as to us today. But look at chapter 4, verses 13 through 17 with me. James writes, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So James starts off saying to Christians that uh, they are leaving God out of the planning of their lives. He's got something to say to them and to us about leaving God out of our planning. Notice the extent of the planning that he described. What do you see there? They planned a start time for what they were going to do. They they planned a length of time. They, they planned out their travel schedule. They even planned their work so that they could be profitable in all of their efforts. And we would say, yeah, that sounds like good planning. What's the big deal? After all, if you fail to plan, then you plan to what? Fail. So what's wrong with what they're doing? And that might be an indicator that we need to hear what James is saying as well if their planning sounds like good planning to us. Because in many ways it does. It does to the world. We get all the plans and, and everything worked out. We make all the arrangements. We've got the strategic plan. We've got the goals. We, we know exactly how this is going to go. And we say, well, what's wrong with that? James's point is that in all of their planning... And in all of our planning, so often we don't even think about God. He's left out of the equation. He's not in the plan at all anywhere. Notice that in him, in James describing their planning, nowhere does he mention their thinking of God in their plans. 
These are Christians who had obeyed the gospel in Acts chapter 2 and then very soon after that had to leave their homes and scatter because of persecution for their faith now are going through life uh, seemingly adjusting to a new life and a new, new work and making a living yet with no thought of God in their day-to-day and long-term plans. How could they go in a short amount of time from responding to the gospel in Acts chapter 2, fleeing because of their faith, instead of giving up on their faith so they could stay in their home and stay in in their, their, their town where they were from. And now they're not even thinking about him as they go about their life. So James asks them, what is your life? What is it? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. This morning, driving in, you may have seen the mist above the ground. There was some low-lying fog. This time of year, we get that, don't we, in the morning. But when you drive home after worship this morning, are you going to still see it? It's gone. It's gone, right? Because it's here for a minute, and then it's gone. The weather changes, the wind changes, things change in the climate, and all of a sudden it's gone. What's James's point in saying that to us, in saying that to them? That life is short and uncertain. And, and, and that we don't like to think of that. We don't want to think about how short and uncertain life is because we like our plans. We, we, we like uh, to think about all that we're going to be able to do and places we're going to go and things we'll accomplish and, and who we'll be and what we'll do and, and, and what we'll have, right? The experiences we'll get to have. We love that. And, and James really isn't saying that there's a problem with that. He's saying the problem is you do all of this and you don't consider God in all of your planning. That's what James is saying. So think about this. How many Christians go off to college and never give one thought to where they're going to worship? And how are they going to remain faithful when they get there? How are they going to grow spiritually? What local congregation are they going to be a a member of and devote their time and effort to and serve at? And, And Instead of just chasing the scholarships and the degree program and, oh, wow, that one sounds fun, or my friends are going there, or I like that football team. Instead of planning it with God in mind. How many people have taken a job and all they saw were were dollar signs? All they saw was that newer car, that bigger house, that boat being able to do the things they want to do, being able to have the extra that they'd like to have. That's all they could see when they took that job. They never thought about, well, I've got to move. And, and, and where are we going to worship? And how are we going to give our, continue to give ourselves to God? And what time constraints do, do I have? Time demands will I have now on my life? What will it do to my family? What will it do to my availability to serve in the local church? Is there a strong local church where I'm going that I can be a part of? And yet we just go about making all kinds of plans with no thought in mind about God. We get into sports leagues and hobbies. Oh, no. 
Man, not supposed to talk about that. We get in these sports leagues and, and, and different hobbies, and they literally take us right out of church, and we give not a second thought to it at all. We just, we just sign up and pay our money, and they pluck us out of church, and we never thought about it whatsoever. And now we're in it. Now, well, the team depends on us. Well, my, my friends expect me to be there. I made a commitment. How often does that happen to people who say they believe in God? And so then we go about our lives and we actually boast about the things that we're doing and what we're accomplishing. We're, We're proud of it. And what does James tell them? He says, all such boasting is arrogance. In fact, it's evil. He said, when you're you're boasting about all these things with no thought of God, he said, do you not see the arrogance in that? Do you not see how evil that is? That's not guided by the will of God. And he says, instead, verse 15, here's what you ought to be like. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. What's he saying? His point is that in life we make all kinds of crucial decisions. And for the Christian, the first thing on our mind ought to be, does this please God? Does this glorify God? Is this what God would have me to do? You see, God may not care really whether or not you take this job or that job. What He cares about is your faithfulness to Him. What's this going to do to your faith? And and how am I going to be able to continue to use you in my service? Or is this going to take you away from me, further away from me? What's this going to do to your relationship with God? See, we should have the attitude that gives God His rightful place in our planning, in our lives, in the ordering of our lives. That's the way the Christian approaches decisions in life. And so the big idea that James is trying to get across to them and also to us is that life is short and it's a gift from God. And everything we do ought to be done in a way that glorifies God. So if I use that as as a criteria to decide, okay, where am I going to go to school? Where am I going to work? Who am I going to date? Who am I going to marry? What hobbies am I going to do? What are we going to say yes to and what are we going to say no to? And And if, will this glorify God? Will this help me be more faithful and more available to His service? then that might be an okay thing to do instead of going about our lives as if he's not even a part of it. And so James ends his thought here in verse number 17 with this sweeping statement. He says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now remember, James was writing to new Christians, so, but they weren't so new where they didn't know anything. They knew right from wrong. They knew what was right and they knew what was wrong. They knew how they were supposed to be living. And James is writing to them to remind them of these things that they urgently needed to know. As, and, and we do today in our culture as well. And he's telling them that there's a difference between doing what you know is wrong and then you know this is the right thing that you should do and you choose not to do it. You see, there's a difference there. Oftentimes, we just get focused on this. Don't do bad stuff, and you'll be fine. Well, I haven't done all these bad things. I'm okay. I'm a good person. 
That, that, that's not all that there is when it comes to sin. It says also when you know what you're supposed to be doing, when you know what the right thing is you need to do now and you don't do it, that's also sin. And we need to hear that message too, don't we? It's a sin, we often call it the sin of omission. We omit it. We, we, we don't do it even though we should do it. It's the sin, uh, the sin of not doing what is right, what we're supposed to be doing. We, we know we should stand up for what's right at work or at school uh, or in a relationship, but we don't, and we just keep uh, going along with the flow. We know we should share our faith with that person, that we should strike up a conversation with them, that we should reach out to them, but we don't. James says, that's a sin. We know we should invite someone to church, but we don't. When you know the right thing to do, then he said to him, it's a sin. We know we should get involved, but we don't. We should be doing so. We should be serving, but we don't. We know we should be studying the word of God and we should be in prayer, but we don't. We know we should be here more regularly, more often. I mean, I'd say every time we meet, we ought to be here. And we know we ought to be doing these things more engaged and we don't. James says, look you got to think about this. You might not be doing a long list of bad things, but you're not doing what you know you ought to be doing. And he said, that's a problem. That's a sin. See, being faithful to God isn't just about not doing wrong. It's about doing what's right. That's what it means to be faithful to God. Now look at chapter 5, verse 1. He transitions here to talk about rich people. And he's not talking about people who are wealthy in the church. And perhaps there weren't any, uh, very few if any, among those he was writing to. But he is talking to the wealthy in society in which they all lived in that area. And he's writing in a style that is different than what we normally see. He's writing to the wealthy as if they are there listening in the audience when the letter was read to them, like listening over the shoulder, over his shoulder, wanting to know what would James say to us about God's perspective, how God views our wealth and how we live. That's the approach he's taking, as if they're there listening, wanting to know what would God say about us who are wealthy out here in society, not Christians. So he's, he's taking it from that angle. And the Christians there needed to hear this as well. And so he writes in verses 1 through 6, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have, uh, are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So he turns his attention to the wealthy in their culture, and they were the ones who were oppressing the Christians that he's about to address after he addresses the wealthy in society. 
And he tells them, look, this is what's going to happen to you. He's giving them a warning. He's giving them a clear picture of the future based on how they're living and the, the way they're managing the wealth that they have. And, and so James tells them that their wealth is temporary and unstable. It, it's not, it's not going to last. You think you've got so much control in life. You think you've got... Uh, uh, Everything stable. You've got your hands on everything and you've, you've done all of this. And he says, no, you don't understand how temporary and unstable and insecure your wealth is. Because remember, life is but a mist. It's here now and gone in a moment. So he's not saying that wealth is wrong. He's saying you're wrong in how you've used it. That's what he's saying to them if they were to listen and want to know. He's saying while people were around them in, in their, in where they lived that were hungry, you've got food stored up over here that's rotting. That's how much food you have. And while people are going hungry, he's saying, well, there's people who don't have enough clothes to wear. You've got clothes in your house piled up that you can't even wear and moths are eating them. He said, you, you've got people who are, uh, who are uh, poor and in need. And you've got so much money, it's stacked up back here and you'll never use it. And these are a testimony against you to the wealthy in society. Because you couldn't care less about those less fortunate. God gave you these blessings and yet you hoard them for yourselves. So in addition to that, we see that they mistreated the Christians who worked for them, who labored in their field. They would even defraud them and not pay them. They would, they would even, in some cases, murder them, James says. So you've not only withheld your blessings from helping others, you've even mistreated the poor who work for you and labor for you, who give you that wealth. That's, that's how you got wealthy, is because of their labor. And so he's showing them that their cries, the cries of the poor, the cries of these poor Christians, the righteous people, are heard by God. And God will bring righteous judgment to them. They will be punished while the righteous, we see, this theme in Scripture where this great reversal of roles that we're about to see will happen one day. So look at verses 7 through 12 of chapter 5. Be be patient. He turns his attention to the Christians, those who are poor, those who are mistreated, those who are struggling in their faith, those who are going without, those who are being abused and oppressed by the rich in society who couldn't care less about them. He turns to the Christians, and this sounds so much like many of Jesus' parables, and he says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Can you imagine being one of those Christians and, and, and you see uh, uh, your fellow Christian out there in the field being beaten? You've been beaten yourself. You hadn't been paid in days. Your family's starving and don't have enough clothes. You don't have enough to meet your needs. You're barely making it. And James writes to you and says, be patient. Hang on. Jesus is coming soon. See how the farmer waits, he writes. See, they would understand that. They worked in the fields. They understood agriculture. He said, he said, think about the farmer. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Being patient about it until it receives 
the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may be not judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. He brings up Job because they would have been like, oh yeah, that's right, Job. How did anyone stay faithful through all that? And he says, well, be like Job. And you've seen, uh, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful Verse 12, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by an o- any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So James says something to the wealthy who are the oppressors, and then he says something to the Christians being oppressed. And he says, hang on, Jesus is coming. And Jesus wrote about that same theme In the parables, that one day when Jesus returns, there'll be a great reversal of roles and no longer will the the, the poor and oppressed and and, and destitute and rejected be be in that state. They will be exalted and lifted up in heaven. And those who, uh, like the story of Lazarus and the rich man, uh, they, they had it all on earth but didn't care about those around them in need. They will be brought low and eternally will lose their souls. Look at in Luke's account of the Beatitudes that Jesus taught in Luke chapter 6. Listen to what Jesus said, verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And in verse 24, he says something to the wealthy. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation or comfort. In other words, you've already got your comfort. You've been blessed already. Now, he's not saying there's anything wrong with With wealth, he's saying the point is you didn't care about anybody. And the the poor and the oppressed and the destitute, they're rich in Christ. And they will have that wealth forever in eternity. So waiting patiently for Jesus to return means living godly lives. He's saying don't let go of your faith. Hold on. Jesus is coming. Don't give up on your faith so that you can have uh, the pleasures of this life. It means doing His work while we wait for Him to return. See, we have to live with eternity in mind. That's how we're supposed to live our lives. Our lives that, uh, that we live now, the planning we do, the things that we do, the things we set out to accomplish, need to be done with God's will in mind, with His eternity in mind. Where would we spend, would like to spend eternity? I think there's a song that says something, where will we spend eternity? And that's got to be our question that guides every decision we make. Does this glorify God and will this help me live in eternity? So he closes, James closes in verse 12 with a verse, a sentence that sounds kind of like it doesn't fit there. It sounds real abrupt and some of his His writing sounds that way. Some have called James the Proverbs of the New Testament because he kind of goes from thought to thought throughout real quickly and a little abruptly. Uh, But verse 12 fits within what he's saying, but he does shift gears here. And he's saying that Christians should be of such integrity and character in the world that when they say yes, everybody believes them. And if they say no, everybody believes them. 
They're not hypocrites. That if they give their word to do this or not to do this, then people just know, well, he's a Christian. I believe him. I know she's going to do what she said because she's a Christian. See, for James, this was a matter of integrity. That I don't need to, I don't need to do all these oaths and all these you know, hand signals and words and special sentences and all these things and, and a thumbprint and all that for you to believe that, okay, I'm going to do what I say. Now, I know we live in a society where you've got to sign contracts and things like that. But James is saying this is, a, this is about your integrity as a Christian. If you say yes, then that's what you mean. If you say no, then that's what you mean. And that's how it ought to be. And so that all fits in with how we live our lives. Uh, we live our lives with eternity in mind, with the, uh, uh, the goal of glorifying God. But as we close, I want to point us back to verses 7 and 8 there of chapter 5 about the farmer who waits patiently for his crop. Many of you have grown up doing farming to some le- at some level, large or small. Maybe you still do some of that now. It's not as common, unfortunately, as uh, for the small farmer. Uh, they're less common nowadays. But many of you understand this firsthand. You know what it's like for that farmer to wait for the crop. You've prepared the soil, you've planted the seed, you've, you've, you've uh, done everything you can to provide the proper environment for that crop to grow and be successful. And you've had times when you had a wonderful crop. It was beyond what you thought it could be. It was perfect. And then you've had times when you thought, I did everything right, what happened? And everything just turns out bad if it even grows at all. And, and he's saying that's how the farmer is. He does, he does all of his work. And then all he can do is just sit back and wait and see what happens. And he's hopeful, but he's uncertain, right? He, he doesn't really know what kind of crop he's going to have. But James is saying, think about the farmer, but at the same time, you're different than the farmer of the earth. See, we're different, right? Because we don't sit back and wonder how this is going to end up. We don't have to sit back and and wonder, I wonder if I'm going to go to heaven. We don't have to sit back and think, I don't know. I'm just not sure. I don't know how this is going to turn out. Because when you are in Christ, that means you've you've been baptized into Christ for the remission, the forgiveness of your sins. And so you've put on Christ in baptism. You are now in Christ and your sins have been washed away and you've been given the the, the deposit, the guarantee of the Holy Spirit and you're living faithful. You're holding on, like James is saying, hold on to your faith, endure patiently. And that's what you're doing. Then you're in Christ and your reward is certain. The The farmer does his very best, but his reward is uncertain. The Christian's reward is certain that you know it will be a home in heaven for eternity. And isn't that good news? And isn't that the good news of the gospel? And James says, no matter what's going on in your life, hold on and don't give up. 
And we want you to do that this morning. That message is for you this morning. Don't give up. Maybe your health is failing. Maybe your everything around you is crumbling and failing. You're hurting inside. You're broken. Whatever's going on. James says, don't give up. Jesus is coming. And maybe you're thinking, wow, I'm uncertain about my reward. I I don't know what my crop is going to be. Then maybe you need to ask the question, am I saved? Am I a Christian? What must I do to be saved? And let us study with you. Maybe you're ready this morning. But are you living with eternity in mind? And if you are, what decisions follow that? And if you're not, what do you need to do to live with eternity in mind? If we can help you this morning, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.